Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond and I will be your moderator for today. This isn't to mess with your mind or because Megan has lost a voice. In fact, I expect her to be very vocal on some of the points today as uh, our pre-show discussions have shown. No, I'm the moderator today because I am my dual roles as a horror author and also as commissioning editor of Gemstone Romance. I have a particular interest in today's topic, which is virgins and villainesses. We anticipate this being a two-part episode with virgins today and villainesses in two weeks' time, which, believe me, is not a phrase you get to say very often. So, ladies, it is a classic trope, particularly in horror, that only the virgin survives when danger threatens. Can you think of any examples of this in other genres, such as science fiction and fantasy? I think there's certainly a precedent for a woman's power being linked to her virginity and awareness of that fact, um, you know, male awareness of that fact. Um, the first, I, mean, I think there's probably so many instances of this in fantasy that I can't think of any really glaring ones, which is just silly. But the 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 one that jumped first to my mind, maybe because I love it to bits, is the whole Raceline and Chrysania example that that pairing from Dragonlance, um, because it's really it's very interesting because Chrysania is of course the 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 white actually physically you know dressed in white beautiful cold um uh, priestess of the the kind of good god as it were whereas Raceline is uh, a sorcerer he's pretty corrupt um he's a brilliant character but a definite anti-hero uh and he uh, at one point um Chrysania is very attracted to him possibly one of the only women who's ever been attracted to him because he's very standoffish and he physically stops her stops himself from seducing her um, because he realizes that actually he needs to keep her virginity intact if she's to help him enter the abyss which is his plan he's basically going to defeat the dark goddess and become or take her place uh, which is really um it's amazing that she's actually helping him um with this plan which is kind of i was just thinking about this um pairing uh, just before we started recording actually and um the the unusual thing in this instance is that they're actually both inexperienced sexually um Chrysania obviously being a priestess as a virgin but Raceslin who you know is totally in love with his magic not with women um and he and it says i mean um, weiss and hickman make many references to the fact that he even though he is this his villain he is absolutely inexperienced sex sexually um and, and you know and that's and actually it's, it's a bone of contention really with his brother is far more kind of you know uh typically heroically good looking um so i thought that was a really interesting pairing that it didn't quite fall into the the normal stereotype you do have a, you know a heroine a priestess a virgin whose power is her chastity and her virginity but then you also have this um you know the, her opposite who maybe isn't quite so opposite um as you know as, as it first appears no, that's some very good points i mean where do we think this original trope comes from? Because it's present, obviously, very much in, in horror, uh, to the extreme that you've got films like Scream that uh, show you the rules of it all and like, oh, well, you can't have sex, so you're going to die. Uh, and we've obviously got it in, um, in science fiction and fantasy as well. But where do we think it comes from and what was it that influenced its creation? I think, Megan, you had some interesting points about this when we uh, discussed this pre-recording. Um, yeah, so I mean, you can go back to things like fairy tales, which obviously they're moral lessons and they often inv involve like 
young girls as the protagonists and you know a lot of those stories are about the protection of the innocent um, virginal pure young girl um and which you know you can kind of see when uh, someone like uh Anne rice writing under her pseudonym writes the um sleeping beauty tale and you know a twisted bdsm version of that and then you have things you know when you go into dracula so one of you know the very big uh, influential novel when it comes to um fantasy especially you have the fact that the vampires feast on the blood of virgins i mean that just in itself is it kind of dictates the rest of the um the narrative around that and a lot of the the bit that comes from dracula is you know it's about that kind of obviously we're we're trying to keep the virgins pure but at the same time it's also about um recognizing female desires and that darkness and that other and that other is dracula it's it's the the vampires and this is again what you see constantly throughout um a lot of paramount paranormal romance and uh <laughs> when i was looking them up you get um i actually found a list about them and it, and it had a little uh blurb at the top where it was talking about how these wonderful paranormal romances with an epic deflowering scene yes um oh, wow. <laughs> this is apparently what what they're after so i mean obviously the you know there's twilight um I, I thought a great one was i found a book called the vampire and the virgin which kind of sums it all up in one really <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can yeah, kind of guess how that's going to end. Yeah, you can kind of see. But I, yeah, I do think it, it's very much about, you know, the physical desires and um, those who succumb to it kind of su- succumb to uh, the, the seduction of the vampire or this, this dark supernatural force are succumbing. It's the metaphor for women succumbing to their uh, base desires. Well, it's fascinating because if you think about it, it probably goes all the way back to the original teachings about Adam and Eve and the idea that women's desire, um, whether that was sexual or for an apple or whatever you want to interpret the serpent as being, was very much about um, it being Eve who's sort of forcing it on Adam. And it's it's something that you see a lot of. I mean, we were talking about romance earlier and there it, it's kind of weird. I've read quite a bit of romance in my time and you do tend to get very much there's a focus on the sex scene there's usually in romance you sort of have the first part of the story and about two-thirds of the way through they'll sleep together and then you'll sort of have the excuse the pun the climax at the end where they resolve whatever the subplots were going on uh, and there is obviously a lot of build up to that and I think in romance you're constantly working against this idea that you want your heroine to be plucky um and you don't you want to try and get rid of of the bad parts of that whole virgin idea but at the same time you want to still capture the excitement of being a virgin and being seduced at the first time it's quite a tricky balance to get i think in romance because if you have the woman being too wet and weak to begin with then it doesn't really really work as well when you know she finally gets to the the denouement bit where they're you know doing as they do in romance novels um but certainly as time's gone on, things have obviously changed quite a bit. And uh, I was thinking a lot about how things are today. And uh, I mentioned earlier Scream and the idea that that sort of exposed the rules um, and mocked them as well. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's been a long time since I saw Scream, but I'm pretty sure the one who had sex died anyway. So that was a bit of a a non-starter. But it, it certainly had this idea of saying, hey, look, these are the rules of these type of stories. 
And then the one that I always thought was fascinating was um, Buffy. And I like the idea that uh, Joss Whedon basically said, well, I looked at all these horror movies where the blonde girl runs into the kitchen and grabs a banana and fails to defend herself. And I kind of went, well, actually, what would happen if that blonde girl picked up a knife and kicked some ass instead? And I think obviously from something so negative has become a really forceful and iconic character. Um, and certainly the world would be a poorer place without Buffy. Or am I alone in, in thinking that? No, definitely not. I love Buffy uh, and it's been many, many years since I watched any Buffy and that's terrible uh, because when I did watch it, I loved it. And I thought that they, what they get really well is that balance between um, femininity and um, kind of kicking ass in a, in quite a, you know, traditionally masculine way. But Sarah Michelle Gellar never actually comes across as, you know, uh, like masculine, like she hasn't, um, you know, stepped into you know the male persona at all she's always very feminine it actually reminded me of something that megan said when we were talking about jen williams and widrin her main character in her fantasy series um you know we were saying that widrin is very kick-ass she's very you know she's a mercenary she actually she's a rogue she has a lot of the traits that are often ascribed to male counterparts in in fantasy traditionally um and and megan said well you know, it was one of one of the questions we were discussing is what about her femininity and how it does that get lost? And is it important to to retain it? And I think I think it is important to retain it, because obviously one of my pet um, kind of peeves of my pet hates is uh, actually having women, heroic women taking on all of the kind of male attributes and not retaining anything of their gender whatsoever. And for that to be, you know, the main reason why that they're why they're a hero in the first place it's the fact that well hang on why can't they be a woman and have their female attributes and be a hero have you seen the brand new um battlestar galactica the rebooted one by any chance no of have course. you seen it Megan? oh good lass <laughs> well interestingly because i was thinking about this when i was thinking about strong female characters that i like that you know are quite happy to have sex and that doesn't you know affect their their attitude their kick-ass before their kick-ass afterwards it's all good and I was thinking about Starbuck um because she I just love um Katie Sarkoff's uh presentation of that character but of course Starbuck in the original was a bloke and I mean it wasn't very kick-ass the original I used to watch it on BBC Two at six o'clock while I was having my tea when I was a kid and it was very camp and very it was good fun and you know it, you wouldn't have things like the the current Battlestar Galactica if you didn't pave the way with things like the original Battlestar and Buck Rogers and Star Trek and all that it's all part of a, uh, a history leading up to where we are now but it was interesting because I really like Starbuck and I felt that they managed to retain the kind of rogue elements of the original male Starbuck and yet keep her femininity at the same time I thought that was really really well done um what did you think Megan well yeah I mean she on the surface she is that kind of boyish military lad you know she's there with her cigars and her getting so drunk that she falls down and knocks over the poker table and punches a superior officer and all that kind of thing but at the and same that's just time, episode one <laughs> it is it is just episode one uh she's also you know flaw- flawed in a, a more emotional way she's got you know that baggage of having lost a loved one and falling for a complicated guy i'll say <laughs> i mean it's been off the air a long time so i feel like it, uh, kind of spoilers uh, the you know that ship has sailed but 
just in case. I'm not going to say too much. What I would say about Starbuck is that she potentially does sort of fall into the traps that Lucy was talking about, how she is very masculine in many ways and takes on all those masculine roles. But what's interesting, kind of as the series progresses, is that she they start putting her into kind of more what you'd say normal feminine roles and then while she retains the kind of masculine the traditionally masculine approach to those roles so I find that quite interesting you know when she approaches you know a married life or the home or protecting other people that she loves and all that kind of thing she she's kind of um, bridges that gap between the genders which is is something that I really like Absolutely. And I mean, I watched the other day um, the film Riddick because I'm a big fan of Pitch Black. I wasn't too keen on the Chronicles Riddick, but saw that this Riddick, uh, the third film, I think it is, had Katie Sackhoff as a sort of Starbucky style of character. And I thought, brilliant, more Starbuck. You know, what, what could go wrong with that? And it was really weird because it was almost like a textbook way of not writing a strong female character. So she could have been Starbuck in both looks and attitude. Um, but she was called Doll, and I'm guessing it was supposed to be an ironic take, like, oh, you know, hey, Doll, because she clearly wasn't the sort of person who was a doll, Um, but it still kind of irked me a little bit, and one of the guys that, um, so basically she and her captain arrived to try and capture Riddick, and there were already some bounty hunters there, and the other, one of the other bounty hunters is a massive antagonist towards her, and starts chatting her up, and she goes, oh, excuse the language, oh, God, now I don't fuck guys, and it's like, Right, so the only way that these writers thought they could have a really charismatic and butch heroine that we could believe was if she was a lesbian, which to me is just such shoddy writing. It's like, well, no, of all people to say, hey, can you come and play a kick-ass Bounty Hunter-style character? Katie Sackhoff has got it nailed with her performance at Starbuck, and yet they chose to write in this this whole idea, and every single guy's, even Riddick's response to it, was about trying to have sex with her. And I'm like, really, writers, could you think of nothing more original? And then when you contrast that back with Starbuck, where sex is a part of it, but is nowhere near the defining role, and she has so many other attributes and other weaknesses and other strengths, and it just, it just felt like really shoddy writing. But it was so fascinating seeing the very direct comparison of the two... Um, two characters yeah that that is a terrible film which is very sad because <laughs> pitch pitch black is brilliant and i i really like that one <laughs> and i really like the woman in pitch black as well again nothing to do with, with sex in that but she was um she was wonderfully flawed and i, I don't know would you call her a, a villainess given her actions at the beginning for anybody who hasn't seen it at the beginning she's basically on a ship that's about to crash and the question is do i pull this lever here that basically catapults all of the crew behind me out onto the, the um onto the planet we're landing on and kills them all but gives me a better chance of survival and she goes to do that and somebody stops her and then she's got to kind of live with it for the rest of the film and i thought that was a very interesting way because normally when you have women in it particularly women in command they're all about oh well you know we have to protect people and a bit like the um ellen ripley and newt idea but then you've got this wonderful captain who's going no never mind that i'm getting rid of them and i'm going to survive and then when it fails she has to live with it and everybody's going oh you're so fantastic thank you that was really wonderful of you to save us and she's like uh yeah no problem at all see i just Um, thought that was brilliant because it to me that was believable and interesting Absolutely. And so different to the female captains you normally get on these uh, programs. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you two, actually, just as thoughts occurred to me. Um, I mean, what do you think of the fifth element, you know, since we're talking a bit about that side of um, genre? I mean, um, Lilu 
uh, obviously the fifth element, Supreme Being. I'm not, it, it, I have mixed views. I actually love the film, um, but it's it's one of those, mm, once you start delving into it, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm a bit ambivalent about her role as this kind of great protector. I like the fact that she is supposedly, you know, a supreme being. She's like genetically enhanced to be far greater than, um, you know, than, than humans. But then you have Bruce Willis and him doing his hardcore stuff. And you're like, well, you know, actually, a lot of the times she ends up kind of just being a woman in need of looking after Um and there was that that part of it. I mean, I like the fact when she does her kick-ass stuff, she's brilliant. Um, but I just wondered what you guys thought of that film in general. Well, I'm with you and I really love that film. And if it's ever on, I love turning it on. But I must admit, it's mostly for Gary Oldman's performance. I think he's fantastic in it. Um, I think she is kick-ass, but I think she's very reactionary. I can't remember much where she actually proactively goes out and does stuff. She's led around by the priest, so she's led to her her destiny by the priest and she is picked up and protected by Bruce Willis and even at the end when she's got her supreme power she's pretty much not unconscious but she's obviously completely mentally and physically weak and ends up just you know it's not really a grand grand sort of show of power like Galadriel would get no, exactly. She she actually can't seem to save the universe unless he says he loves her. That's right. Oh, yes, that's quite right. Yes. Spoilers alert. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty old now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's really random. You, you're quite right. You've got this main female character who is, um, yeah, who's supposed to be the saviour. And she doesn't actually do anything except be carried around. But, you know, it's Mila Zhojovovich in very little clothing. I'm quite happy to sit and watch that for quite some time. That's a... Uh, that's a brilliant film. I love all the, the costumes for it. I mean, what do you think, Megan? I Yeah, I too absolutely love this film. I I kind of disagree. For me, I, the, the thing is, there's a difference between having an innate power and being able to use it. And I think that's what's interesting about the film. She is a supreme being and she can learn very quickly. But remembering that she's been rebuilt completely. So she's also learning from scratch as well and continues to sort of grow her knowledge throughout the film and it's that constant sucking up of information and she she gets stronger as she goes through and then but you see things like when she she actually does go um proactively to get the the stones and to help out the the diva and then that's when she gets brutally attacked and then you find her shivering and and huddling terrified beaten up kind of broken and it's that thing, yes, she does have this power, but she's still fragile because she has an emotional response to it. She's not a machine. She's she is kind of human in you know, in the alien sense, but she's, you know, something that we can relate to and empathize with. And I find it less about her being a woman and more about her just being a new being <laughs> if I'm making any sense at all. No, that was a fairly elegant defence, actually. <laughs> um, no, it was. I think you have a point. I, I'd like to add, though, that um, the bit that, you know, Charlotte was talking about her being reactionary and you just said, oh, well, the, you know, when she uh, she's not totally reactionary, she actually goes and gets to go to the diva and she saves the stones. But that's when she gets brutally attacked. <laughs> so she's OK when she's with um, Corbin, but not so great when she strikes out on her own 
it's like, is she being punished for being actually taking matters into her own hands? That's true. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a plot device where, you know, they're trying to get her to see the cruelty of the world. And, and sort of that's what I see it being about more like a, a lazy happenstance of, of plotting rather than <laughs> necessarily something gender biased. Well, a good question might be to turn it around and say, well, if you had gender swap the roles, so Corbin was a female taxi driver or female waitress, because let's face it, that's usually what they are in these movies. And it was a bloke that was the savior of the world. And like Megan says, was sort of growing and learning and was vulnerable, not necessarily because of sex and gender, but because of, of the way they were growing. And I could I could just about see that right up until the very last point when she goes to pieces because to me it's almost acceptable like um lucy says that she can't do anything until love is proven to her and corbin says that he loves her but could you really see that playing out if the gender roles would reverse i mean how would people react to a male character who couldn't possibly use his ultimate power unless the girl said that she loved him i can't see that ever happening <laughs> see it's interesting because she she is quite a strong female character and I, like I say I love Gary Oldman's performance but Mila Jojovich is another um draw for that film but yeah it's just it's strange it seems to be both powerful and weak at the same time so after a little diversion into the fifth element let's try and come back to uh, ideas of uh, virgins and villainesses and we're talking about obviously we've had a lot of examples of the trope and I think obviously um Megan said that the Dracula one was a, a fantastic one where you've got it, it is literally about sex but transposed into being you know bitten the minute you're bitten you become this lascivious fantastic creature with really really big breasts and really really tight clothing it seems to be from all the films that i've seen and yeah sexual even, appetite. to be fair that's also happens in buffy when you have a uh, uh, alternate willow who is a leather clad um well, she's a lesbian. Obviously, we know Willow becomes a lesbian later. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, that's right. When, uh, yeah, they go into parallel universe and uh, and parallel Willow is, yeah, actually, now you come to mention it, it's definitely much sexier than... Uh, than yeah. Um, and yeah. Willow comments on it. She's like, oh, you know, and then she says, oh, and I think I'm a little gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But then she goes on to become gay and to become dark and quite sexy at the same time. So it's interesting. Well, that, that kind of undermines what I was about to say, because I was about <laughs> to say that Buffy was, um, obviously, for apologies for anybody who's not watched Buffy. And uh, as I said previously in Labyrinth, you should really just turn the podcast off now and go and, and watch it until, you know, you've got through from series one to seven. But in Buffy, you've obviously got Angel and her... Um, her relationship with him and I think is it the end of season two yes because the end of season one is the master and then end of season two obviously Buffy and Angel sleep together and we've been talking so hang far on, about this like just just uh my uh anal attentiveness they sleep together halfway through season two because at the end of it she stabs him ah of course no you're quite <laughs> right I was I thinking season to... finale <laughs> yeah but I, for I forget of course that in America they have sort of big things happening mid-season as well don't they so mm -hmm. I should have remembered that so yeah you're quite right mid-season two um they sleep together but interestingly rather than what we've been looking at with the idea of um the virgin and the because clearly however many years old he is that um Angel is not the virgin and Buffy is the virgin here and the blonde virgin in the sort of horror movie as well uh, but nothing happens to her particularly because it all happens to Angel. So he's punished for his transgression, which is obviously in, in contrast to what you would have normally in a, a horror film. Uh, and I suppose in a weird way, she is sort of punished 
because he then goes around to kill her and her fish and, and think, oh no, Willow's fish, sorry, um, and things like that. But I just thought it was a really nice turnaround for the books that two people sleep together and it's the guy who who gets the worst deal. And obviously, as I was saying with Scream and, and things like that, it's changing a little bit. I wondered if you guys had any examples, you think, of really good um, twists or current takes on it, on the, the virgin trope, uh, the final girl trope or, or anything like that that you'd like to share. Well, uh, the obvious one is Cabin in the Woods, which again is Whedon, uh, a Whedon pen script, um, which is just brilliant. I love that film. And if anybody hasn't seen it, again, just watch it and then you'll understand what I mean when I say tequila is my lady. <laughs> um, <But> I- <laughs> yeah, great, great film. And then it kind of, and again, like, as you were saying, it, um, with Scream, you know, Cabin in the Woods comments directly on those tropes and the the entire basis of the film is kind of deconstructing in in kind of a really fun um kind of batshit <laughs> way which is, is absolutely really great and it provides an alternative idea as to why the virgin is always the one to escape and i really quite like that taking something historical and turning it into something a bit more um a bit more modern but i think there are there's definitely a move away from this idea of virgins are the only ones who who kind of you know are going to be the centerpiece of the film and are going to survive and i mean the perfect one is obviously uma thurman who is um fantastic in kill bill and uh, i'm not going to give her name given that that's a, a serious part of the uh, of the two films but you know she goes around and and she definitely kicks some ass um and not sexual, but very clear that she's had this sexual relationship with Bill previously and is dressed in very sexy costumes, but still manages to be both female and vulnerable and yet at the same time kick ass. So do any of you guys have any uh, any modern ones that you'd like to, to throw up for examination? Jump in again. I've got another one, which because um, I've been just absolutely chaining Misfits, which is quite a few years old now, um, a British sci-fi show. And I absolutely love Joe Gilgan. If anyone who knows me knows that this is a real thing in my life right now. He's just wonderful. Anyway, <laughs> but watching Misfits, uh, there is an episode where, um, so one of the people that they come across who has this uh, power um, is this pure, innocent girl who uses her kind of, her, her ability is basically to brainwash people and she just walks around trying to turn everybody else into clones of her telling them that they can be good you know they they can be better than what they are and they all become you know these kind of creepy dead eyes cardigan wearing <laughs> whatever um hey there's nothing wrong with cardigans oh i know but <laughs> that's that's the running joke of the episode so it, it, it's just interesting because uh then when you you know because part of misfits is most of the people who get these powers it it reflects their personality in some way and so she talks about how when she was in school and she you know she didn't have sex she didn't smoke she didn't drink and all that kind of thing that she was made fun of and this is obviously another common sort of theme where um sort of in more modern texts where you know the virgin the pure woman is kind of made fun of and she's an object of ridicule um and then she sort of turns that around and says, well, you're making fun of me, but now I can make you all into one of me so that then kind of she becomes the new normal. And that's quite an interesting, fun look at it. 
that's a, a brilliant observation. And actually, it's, it's just made me think, looking through my notes, that we talked about Buffy and we talked about misfits. And another example of women sort of being strong but not necessarily needing to be virgins is obviously The Walking Dead, um, where it seems to be the key is not necessarily having sex but being happy. And the minute you're happy, then something terrible is about to happen to you. And I know that Lucy in the pre-show discussion also mentioned... Um, uh, Game of Thrones as having a a few good strong female characters that are sort of not defined by their sex, and it's interesting that everything we've quoted seems to be TV series rather than films. And I'm just wondering if there might be something in that that it might be a case of women need more screen time to develop beyond um, the idea of they're just being virgins or villainesses. That to be able to d- you know be portrayed as proper complex characters you need to really invest in the character and, and kind of keep going i mean what what do you guys think of that do you think that's a, a valid observation or would you disagree well i'd say from um in terms of like trying to get examples that are more recent i mean my i guess maybe i watch more recent television than i watch more films but sort of you know the older ones would be things like the terminator so sarah connor is kind of she's the final girl um and while, you know, she's not a virgin, but she's kind of presented as kind of pure, you know, you, you look after her and then right towards the end, they have sex and then her partner dies and, you know, everything just gets a bit messed up. Um, and then what I thought was interesting, actually, is I was, I was reading up for this episode. Um, I was looking into poltergeists and apparently in like the, the original law around poltergeists is that they are attracted to virgins. And so then obviously poltergeist, the film using the five-year-old girl is kind of part of that, you know, an extreme example of Mm. (laughs) the, uh, the, the virgin being this conduit for terrible things. Or conversely, a, a ward, you know, to ward off terrible things as in, you know, the virgin sacrificed to the dragon. You know, it's always a virgin given to the dragon to stop the dragon destroying a village. I, it's, It seems like quite a complicated contradiction in that, you know, the virgin has this rather unearthly power. Her virginity itself is an unearthly power and, and it has this, you know, ability to keep others away on a, on a kind of supernatural level and yet you know it's you know maybe in in it's it, this is a more of a modern kind of example when you were just talking about you know the virgin or the young the young girl being ridiculed for her virginity um that which is almost like the kind of total opposite the whole idea around virginity is really quite bizarre and it seems to be full of contradictions like whether it is a power or whether it's um a handicap it's very interesting. And I remember reading, I forget which book it is, I think it's Laws and Ladies, but I could be wrong, by Terry Pratchett, where you have that whole bit that you suddenly have Granny Weatherwax as, as being a virgin. And it was kind of, it was so shocking. And you're right, it was like, in this case, what you would necessarily think might be a handicap, she'd be like, oh, no, you know, like old lady never had sex was actually the one thing that made her more powerful than anybody else because I think she was able to reach out and capture the unicorn or something like that but it was actually her virginity and the fact that she'd stayed pure and not through any noble purpose because let's face it it's granny weatherwax but just because it was part of her nature that allowed her to have this massive power at the end which was uh, a nice twist I thought from uh, Pratchett there that's I've actually forgotten that element of it so it's really interesting because granny weatherwax is a wonderful character and and she what I think Pratchett does so well is juxtaposes her with nanny org who is the complete opposite (laughs) sexually (laughs) 
who never stops talking about her many, many partners and her many children and grandchildren. And yet both are have this strength of character and both are strong in their own ways and they they found their own paths. Just a, another reason why Pratchett is brilliant. But thinking about that fact that you were saying about the contrast between uh, Nanny Og and um, Granny Weatherwax and also what Megan was saying earlier about uh, Sarah Connor being able to survive. Of course, the thing about Sarah Connor and also about my example of Uma Thurman from Kill Bill is that they were mothers. And again, I'm going to steal from Pratchett again. You've got that idea of when Magrat becomes a, a mother, she suddenly stops being a wet hen and starts sort of really becoming a strong character and, and looking out for each other. Um, and again, you've got that idea of Ripley in Aliens where she um, looks after Newt. So I'm wondering then if in some cases being a virgin can be a major handicap or, you know, if, for losing it. But if you lose it and become a mother, you become even more powerful. It's yeah, like it's... exchanging one power for another. I see what you mean. Mm. Yeah, I was also going to say that, it, I mean, it tends to be if they lose it for true love, then it's kind of, you know, the get out of jail free card. Uh, as long as it's true love and not just lust, it's okay. <laughs> that's true, actually. And I suppose, but then that's an interesting when you think about all the horror films where you know people do um, where girls obviously sleep with what they assume is true love, and then ultimately turns out not to be because they all end up dying. That's a bit of a, a condemnation on um, on teenagers, isn't it? That you, if it's okay to have sex with your true love and survive, if you're a teenager and have sex just because, then it's it's clearly really terrible. Uh, yeah. You can't possibly be your true love at that age because that's not the way things work. So. Comes back to Dracula, doesn't it? <laughs> it <laughs> does. comes back to Dracula. Such a terrible double standard as well because nobody holds men up to be accountable for their virginity or lack of it. Well, I suppose thinking about male virginity, it's not really virginity that I'm aware of. It's been a long time since I read the books, but the Thomas Covenant books um, by, oh, the name momentarily escapes me. Do you, have you guys ever read them? No, that's a gap on my shelf. Ah, Thomas Covenant is a character in this world who is a leper. And then he he gets transported into another world where he gets all of the feeling back in his in all of his limbs. And he's just so overwhelmed by this. And s- some people come along and they're, they're absolutely wonderful, really kind people, and they take him in. And it sounds terrible, as I say. He ends up raping one of the daughters simply because he gets so carried away by this whole idea of having um, sort of ex- having all this feeling but that he hasn't had for pretty much all of his life from, you know, from boyhood. Um, and I know quite a few women who sort of said, no, I, I can't really get past that rape scene because that just completely loses it for me as a character. But I read on and it was interesting because I don't know if he was a virgin, but he certainly had this virgin-like state. And then he lost it. And then he ends up having to live with the repercussions of that because some of the people he goes on the quest with are uh, related to the, the woman that he raped. And then later on, he meets his um, his child through through that um, union. And it's just a very unique way of looking at it. The guy doesn't just have sex and then kind of move on. He has to deal with the consequences and he's con- he constantly feels remorse. But it's kind of like, well, it, it's done now. There's no one doing it. And he has to kind of live with that. So that, that was one interesting interesting way of looking at it i can't think of many guys who start off as a virgin and then lose it for true love do you know if we've got some listeners who want to write into us and and give us some examples that we can discuss next time that would be fantastic but you're right i can't think of any off the top of my head what about you megan i was trying to think of, of male virgins in sf but 
The only one I could really think of was Spock in original series Star Trek, because, I mean, he's just completely not interested, even for a Vulcan. He's not interested. <laughs> um, then they have that whole, is it Ponfar, where they have that mad mating ritual? Yeah, the, the seven years, yes. But even then, he does. He has no interest in the woman he's supposed to be with. The fight is part, it's his drive rather than an actual interest in her or completing the you know having sex with it her or anyone it's just about um going through his hormonal phase i guess um so sorry i was gonna say picking up on something charlotte absolutely hates um and and about (laughs) chosen one (gasps) no um yeah well you were saying about male virgins well actually some of the chosen one tropes are quite restrictive as restrictive um for men as they are for for the woman i mean i'm thinking of the belgariad and that's what and i Garion. started thinking of when you said that really as well. yeah because polgara who is kind of his guardian as it were she's always telling him like the minute he starts looking at that farm hand girl farm girl friend of his she's like no go and wash those plates and and that's like the same kind of when he when he's in the clutches of the the serpent queen she's really worried that he's that she's that the serpent queen has seduced garion because garion is supposed to be reserved for like the Tolnedrian princess who is to become you know to give her her prophetic name queen of the world so actually he's in just as restrictive a situation as you know a, a woman would be actually and that makes me think of Fitz as well from uh robin hobbs books because when it comes to is it molly oh, yes yeah yeah names um oh now i'm terrible with his, his uh Hagrid equivalent. <laughs> Which is <what> yes. <laughs> um, well, you know, and he, you know, warns him about it, and you know, don't have this dalliance and whatever, and and obviously it causes a lot of problems when he does actually have sex with her, and not only does it hurt him, it hurts her, and you know, people around him. Um, so that is, I, I'd say, an example of kind of, you know, once he loses his virginity though well the the sex brings about tragedy that's very true so i think the message that all of our listeners can take away is that sex can either be absolutely fantastic and empowering or it can be absolutely devastating and life-threatening so basically watch out out there uh, and that sounds like a good place to stop to me. Uh, thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Join us again in two weeks' time to hear our take on the villainesses that are out there. 